Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. I've placed my spirit in them and given them the supernatural ability to do all kinds of handwork. With, you know, setting stones, with wood carving, with embroidering and making patterns. All so that my temple can be built, my, my tabernacle can be built. Now, if God, under the old covenant, could supernaturally empower people to work skillfully with their hands, do you want to tell me under the new covenant he's not going to do that? And yet, that specific gift is not mentioned in this list. And, and, and we'll sort of look at that gift and say, no, but that's too ordinary. I mean, you can just practice and get good at you know, craftsmanship. You, know? you don't need the Holy Spirit to inspire you or anoint you to do that. Well, God does that. I, 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 um, I, for instance, um, think that my older brother, Harry, has a gift, you know, with, you know, fixing things, you know, because it, it looks supernatural to me because I can't do it. <laughs> you know, fixing things with my hand is not something I can do. He fixes everything. It's like, wow, how do you do that, you know? <laughs> but I really think we should consider not stereotyping the gifts like that and, and, and realizing that, that a lot of the stuff that... Um, we sort of downplay as, as not, the Holy Spirit's not really involved in that. The Holy Spirit actually is involved in a lot more than we realize. Okay. Um, in, in the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, it says, let me just read verse 27, it says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administra uh, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Notice there, Paul, in the beginning of the chapter, mentions the, the, these nine gifts that we read just now. And then at the end of the chapter, he mentions a different list. Then he mentions apostles, prophets, teachers. Now you can say those are slightly different because they are not gifts. It doesn't say uh, some people apostle and some people prophesy and some people teach. It says some are apostles, some are prophets, and some are teachers. Okay? God has appointed them to be. So those are, you might sort of, can, you, you can definitely make a case that those are slightly different. But then look at the rest of, of that list. He goes on and he says, um, then miracles and gifts of healings which are exactly two of the things, working of miracles and, and gifts of healings, two of the things mentioned, two of the nine mentioned in the beginning of the chapter. But then he mentioned helping and administrating. They were not in the previous list, but they're in this list. So God actually empowers people also to be able to do administration. I didn't receive that gift. <laughs> I was passed over when, that, when it came to that one. <laughs> I missed that one. I got other gifts, but I didn't get that one. And it's a gift. No, 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 it's too ordinary. No, it's a gift, according to Paul. Helping is a gift, according to Paul. You see how easily when we... Um, <clears throat> the problem is, here's the problem I have with um, saying that the, the list of nine in, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8 to 10, is exhaustive. 
Because if you say it's exhaustive, those are the gifts and the only gifts, then you look at things that are genuinely gifts of the Holy Spirit and you sort of dismiss them and you don't appreciate them, you don't value them. You lift up people who have those nine gifts or your definition of those nine gifts, but you discourage actually people who don't have, who have different gifts. And, and people can't even recognize them. And they look at themselves and say, I'm not gifted by the Holy Spirit. And they become discouraged. You see, we actually do ourselves a great disservice as the church if we don't recognize the full spectrum of gifting that the Holy Spirit gives. And like I said last time, let's not only focus on the spectacular. God gives some gifts that are very spectacular and they are very important. But God also gives certain gifts that are less spectacular but are as important. Let's value all the gifts and let's value every person's gifting. Um, then, so so the, the, the point of the list is not to be exhausted or, or exhaustive or complete but illustrative. Secondly, the point of this list is not to define the gifts. Um, it just lists the gifts. And you have to look elsewhere how to define it. Now, why I mention that is I find the definitions typically given for the gifts are often very bad. Now, I read Scripture and I look at the gifts, that, the definitions that we often give to those gifts, and I think, how on earth did you get to that? <laughs> how did we get to that? Okay? Some of the giftings are easy to define. Okay? So like a gift of faith. You know, what is a gift of faith? I think most of us have a pretty good idea, you know. Because on the one hand, the Holy Spirit gives, gives us faith, you know, opens our eyes and, and helps us to have faith in Jesus. But that's something that everyone has. That's not a gift um, that is, you know, given to some and not to others. But, but what is the gift that is over and above normal saving faith? Okay? What do you think it is? I think most of us would say it's a, like a supernatural ability to believe for miracles, to believe certain things. And, and Scripture actually confirms that. Listen to, to this. Um, it says in just the next chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 2, And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so, that I, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Faith to move mountains. So the gift of faith is, 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 in a sense, the faith to move mountains, the faith to be able to speak to mountains, the faith to be able to trust God to remove all kinds of blockages that in the natural are, you know, cannot be done. That is the gift of faith. So some of them are quite easy to define, but, but others are a bit more tricky. Um, and, you know, I think some of them we, we get wrong. And, and here's the thing I just want you to realize. When... Who, who of you have ever experienced a, manifest, a manifestation of the Spirit? Just quickly put up your hand. Nice and high. Real nice and high. Yeah, most of us have, okay? When you experienced that manifestation of the Spirit, did you hear a voice from heaven saying, you have now experienced the gift of discerning of spirits? Was there a voice that announced to you or that labeled what you just experienced to you? See, that's the problem. So often we experience the gift, but... No, you know, we have to go and look and decide, okay, what label do we put on it? And often we put the wrong label on it. Okay? Um, so, for instance, I'm just going to look at three of the gifts in that sense uh, and, and try and define them actually from Scripture and not just thumb suck. You know, most of the definitions that I've seen uh, or heard commonly in the charismatic church come from 
um, a man called Kenneth Hagen. He wrote a book about the gifts. Um, and I read the book, but he, he doesn't even try to define it from Scripture. He just sort of says, okay, this is what I think it is, without much referring to Scripture. And, and the church has, has basically taken over those definitions without actually checking it against Scripture. And I think some of them are wrong. So, um, three manifestations that are often confused, in my opinion, are uh, and, and often defined incorrectly are prophecy, um, word of wisdom, and word of knowledge. So let's just quickly look at those three and, and just look at what the Bible actually says about those three. Okay, let's look at prophecy first. What is prophecy? Let me just read to you in chapter 14, verse 29 to 32. Now, there are two um, wrong definitions here. Uh, on the one hand, um, you know, some charismatics will say prophecy in the New Testament is less than prophecy in the Old Testament in the sense of prophecy in the Old Testament was uh, revealing the will of God for a situation, but also predictive of the future. But in the New Testament, it's not. You know, it's, it's only you know, edification and exhortation and comfort, um, but it's not predictive. On the other hand, you get people who don't actually, you know, who are hesitant, you know, about the supernatural, and they'll say, no, it's actually not like the Old Testament at all. It's not, you know, um, receiving a, a word or a vision or a dream from the Spirit. It's, it's actually just preaching. Okay? And both of those, are, I've heard both of those quite commonly, and both of those I believe are wrong. Um, listen to what, what um, 1 Corinthians 14 from verse 29 says. It, it says, Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. And, and just by the way, um, all the gifts must be tested. Because even though the gifts are supernatural endowments by the Holy Spirit, uh, we are fallen human beings and we often get them wrong. And, and God has placed necessary checks and balances in place. Uh, like I said last time, you know, often the gifts are abused because they are not tested. And then a lot of people say, no, throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, because the gifts can be abused, you know, just avoid them altogether. But like I said last time, the cure for abuse is not disuse, but proper use. That's Paul's cure. So he says, um, you know, let the others weigh. And then in verse 30 he says, If a revelation is made to another sitting there, uh, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So, sorry, the spirit of the prophets are subject to prophets. Um, in other words, the spirit of prophecy is subject to the judging of other prophets. In other words, there must be checks and balances. But, but here's the point. It says... Let two or three prophesy and, you know, let them do it one by one, you know, in order. And then if one is busy prophesying and one sitting by receives a revelation, what does that tell you about prophecy? Number one, it tells you prophecy is revelation. It's a revelation. It's a, the word in the Greek is ap uh, apocalypsis, you know, apocalyptic, which means to, to remove a veil. So prophecy is the removing of a veil so that you can see and, and know what you could not see and know before. And that could be things about the present, or it could be things about the future. It's an unveiling, in a sense. But it's a revelation. You know, something is revealed by, by the curtain being pulled away by the Holy Spirit. But that revelation is not something, it's not, a, it's not like some, you know, cessationists, you know, who don't believe in the gifts, say, no, it's just 
preaching. You prepare a, a preaching message. You know, they'll say what I'm doing now is prophesying. And in a sense it is, but I mean, it's, not, it's much more than just that. I mean, when you talk about prophecy there, it says if someone sitting by receives a revelation, what does that tell you? It's not a prepared message. It's not like he prepared the message before the service and uh, then he was waiting for the opportunity during the service to deliver the message. Now he was sitting there and all of a sudden, out of the blue, as it were, the Holy Spirit gave this invasive, um, spontaneous revelation that he wants, that he, the Holy Spirit, wants this person to speak prophetically. So prophecy is invasive, spontaneous revelation. That's what it is. It's supernatural. It's not like some would say, just something that someone read from the Bible. It comes directly from the Spirit, not necessarily through the Bible. Obviously, it should agree with the Bible. Prophecy is never allowed to contradict the Bible. Um, but it's, it's not just preaching from Scripture. Okay, and then um, in verse... In verse 22 to 25, it says the following. Thus, tongues are assigned to for believers, uh, sorry, assigned not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is assigned not for unbelievers but believers. And that's a very confusing um, sort of verse. Many people struggle with it. And I want to go into it in too much depth. It says, um, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, an outside or unbelie- uh, and an outsider or unbeliever enters... Will, not, um, will they not say that we are out of our minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, revealed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Can you see what it says there? It's very powerful. It says, you know, if, if, if we're prophesying, what it does, prophecy leads to conviction. If someone comes in and there's prophesying, people's hearts will be convicted. People will be brought to account. The secrets of people's hearts will be revealed. In other words, prophecy is a form of revelation that reveals secrets. Okay? Um, now, I just want to compare that. Uh, just remember that that part, the secrets of hearts being revealed. So, revelation of, of secret knowledge. Verse 1 in uh, chapter 14, verse 3 to 4 says, If I give away, uh, away all I have... No, sorry, wrong chapter. <laughs> On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks for people, to people for their upbuilding, edification, and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds him, uh, up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So when, when you prophesy, you, 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 you build up, you edify, you encourage, you exhort. Now, exhorting as a, both a positive. The translation here I don't think is very good because it only brings out the positive aspect of, of exhortation, which is consolation. Exhortation can on the one hand mean consolation, but it also means to challenge. So there's, there's also a, a confrontational aspect to exhortation. You challenge. Um, there, <laughs> there's this, this picture, you know, um, in, 
of, of King, one of the English kings, I think it was King George or so on, and he was walking behind, you know, his, the, the lines of his soldiers, you know, with his sword and sort of stabbing them, not really hard, but stabbing them with his sword and saying, come on, you're going to go now, you know. And, and, and that is saying King George, on the picture it says King George exhorting his, <laughs> exhorting his soldiers. <laughs> Sometimes the exhorting is this, you know, you know, giving someone a prick, you know, confronting them a bit. Um, but all of that is prophecy. And, and, and taken that, all that taken together, invasive, spontaneous revelation, revealing of the secrets of the heart, bringing conviction, edification, exhortation, comfort, or, or exhortation uh, to encouragement and exhortation to, to men. All of that is what, what um, prophecy is about. And let me just give you one or two examples from Scripture. In Acts, we, we see some good examples of all of these things. Um, Acts tw- 11 verse 28 says, um, And one of them named Agabus, so verse 27 says, Now in, uh, in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine in all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius Caesar. And it's even recorded in, in secular history, the famine that took place, that Agabus prophesied. And then in, in chapter 21, um, from verse 10, it says, uh, While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, uh, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. So, so can you see, you know, Agabus wasn't bringing a, a biblical message, like a message from Scripture and quoting a Scripture and saying, this is what Scripture says. He's saying the Holy Spirit says, addressing something that is, not specific, that is too specific to be addressed in Scripture. And that's part of what prophecy is. Okay? Um, then a, a, another... Uh, one is the so-called word or utterance of wisdom. Um, and, and often it is said, I've heard the most common definitions I've heard of, of this word of wisdom or utterance of wisdom is that, number one, it's predicting the future. So, so some people will say, no, prophecy doesn't predict the future, but the word of wisdom predicts the future. Others would say that, no, it's just wise advice. That's probably the most common one, you know. Word of wisdom is just wise advice. And I think both of those are wrong. And I'll show you from Scripture why I say so. Um, the word used there, when it says word of wisdom or utterance of wisdom, is the word logos. Logos uh, to Sophia. You know, it's logos of wisdom. The word logos obviously translated often word, but it can also mean utterance or message. Now, look at what Scripture says in the same letter how Paul uh, actually talks about wisdom. And wisdom is one of the big themes in the book of 1 Corinthians. The, the Corinthian guys really loved wisdom. But worldly wisdom, rhetoric, you know, guys who were debaters and who could speak well and were very eloquent. So Paul actually speaks a lot against wisdom, but then he brings the godly alternative. And I just want to read you a few verses that um, basically illustrate that. Uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says... For the word of the cross, and the word used there, actually um, the NIV translates the message of the cross, which I think is a better translation. The message of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
the logos of the cross, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. Then verse 30 says, um, And because of him you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that, uh, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 4 to 8 says, And my speech and my message, and, and the and the word used there again is logos. My speech and my message um, were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do not we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, this wisdom, in other words. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Can you see that this logos of wisdom, this word of wisdom, is the word, the the, the, the secret wisdom of God, the, the wisdom of the gospel, the wisdom of the crucified Lord, which is foolishness to the world. So I want to submit to you that a logos or message of wisdom is the message of the cross. It's, as it were, the apologetic, it's apologetic gospel preaching. And I'm going to show you examples which confirm that. I'm going to show examples which confirm that. Now think about this. As you're thinking about that, just think about this for a moment. Would it not be strange, would it not be strange if the Holy Spirit inspired and empowered all kinds of other things but not the preaching of the gospel? And yet, for some Pentecostals and Charismatics, that's exactly the idea we have of the gifts. You can preach the gospel without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You can do all kinds of other stuff with the empowerment, but not preach the gospel. Verse 13 of chapter 2 says, um, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths uh, to those who are spiritual or in spiritual language. In other words, we imparting the wisdom the word, the message of wisdom of the cross by the power of the Spirit. Now, in, in, in verse 4, uh, Paul had said, My speech uh, and my message, my logos, uh, were not in plausible words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Notice what he says. He's not saying that my, my preaching and my, my message, my logos, were accompanied by the Spirit and by power. They weren't, he's not saying, they were. Obviously, we know that Paul did healings, he did miracles and all that kind of stuff. So, so his preaching were accompanied by miracles. But that's not what he's saying here. He's not saying my, my preaching and my, my, my message were accompanied by the Spirit and by power. He's saying my preaching and my message were in demonstration of the Spirit and power. The message itself, the preaching itself was empowered. And that is what the message of wisdom is about. Or that's one of the things that the message of wisdom is about. Let me just give you a few examples from Scripture. Probably the clearest example uh, to me of um, 
this message of wisdom three times in, in Luke's writing. Uh, Luke chapter 12, Luke chapter 21, and Acts chapter 6, we see this. Acts chap- uh, Luke chapter 12, um, verse 11 to 12, it says, um, And when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself and what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Okay, and then in chapter 21, we, we see pretty much the same thing, just a, a little bit expanded in some ways. Uh, verse 12 to 15. It says, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors uh, for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to uh, meditate beforehand how to answer. For I, obviously by implication through my Holy Spirit, will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And then in Acts chapter 6 we see a perfect example of that. Verse 10, uh, it says... Um, you know, there, there was a conflict. Um, Stephen, one of the seven, uh, rose up and he was preaching the gospel in the synagogues. And uh, some of the, the, the non-Christian Jews rose up against him and, it's, and, and they started to resist him. They rose up and disputed with Stephen. And then verse 10 says, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Can you see that um, a message of wisdom, a logos of wisdom, is a kind of apologetic Gospel defense, defense of the gospel, preaching of the gospel that convinces people of the truth of the gospel and gets them saved. As the scripture convinced you. What I want you to see out of that is that maybe your definition of the gifts are wrong and are stereotyped. Let's not stereotype the gifts. I, I, I wanted to look at a uh, word of knowledge as well, but, but I don't have time. Um, Word of knowledge is probably teaching under the inspiration of the Spirit. One of the most common manifestations of the Spirit in the book of Acts is preaching and teaching under the inspiration of the Spirit. Someone, it says, uh, Luke would say in Acts, and -and so-and-so was full of the Holy Spirit and he preached or he taught. And yet, the typical Pentecostal charismatic definition of the gifts has no category for that. Okay. Um, often people will say, no, word of knowledge is I get supernatural knowledge of something going on in someone's life. Like someone has a certain sickness or disease or pain. Hang on, that's prophecy. The secrets of someone's heart being revealed. That's not a word of wisdom or a word of knowledge. Can you see how we often wrongly define the gifts? And then we take things that are empowerment of the Holy Spirit and gifts and we say, no, that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because we have no category for it. Um, so what, what is this list for? This list is to illustrate the diversity of the manifestation of the Spirit. So it's not an exhaustive list. It's not a complete list. But it's an illustrative list to show us a kind of diversity um, of the Holy Spirit. And, and Paul's point becomes very clear in uh, chapter 12, verse 11, where he says at the end of the list, All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. In other words, Paul's point is that it's the Holy Spirit, the one Spirit, who creates all of this diversity in the body. 
It's the one spirit who creates all of this diversity in the body. And, and like I said last time, that's why we must value the, the diversity of the body. Because if, you don't, if we don't value the diversity of the body, we're actually resisting the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who creates that diversity. It's like, you know, I always use the example of your hand. You know, other fingers might say, look at thumb. He's always opposite. He's always contrary. He's other dwarfs. <laughs> He's always looking in the opposite direction from us. But guess what? If we didn't have an opposable thumb, we as human beings would not be able to create all the wonderful things we create. I mean, all of the stuff around us, this mic, these chairs, the glasses you, you might be wearing, the clothes you're wearing, none of that would have been possible if we did, as humans didn't have opposable thumbs. We need that diversity in our hands, amongst our fingers, in order to effectively do amazing things with our hands. And it's the same in the body. We need the diversity. Don't complain because people are different from you. Celebrate the differences that the Holy Spirit creates. Okay, um, in verse 13, uh, this is my second point. Uh, so my first point is that the Holy Spirit creates the diversity in the body. My second point um, is in, in verse 13 uh, where it says, uh, for, we were, for in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. Um, just like our modern world, the ancient world of the New Testament was very segregated. Very segregated. As much, possibly even more than our world. It's not only ethnic groups that were segregated. Genders, you know, male and female were segregated. Social classes were heavily segregated. I mean, it's, it's true for us as well. It's true for us as well. I, th I think South Africa is more divided now um, than it's been in a long time, unfortunately. And it, it just shows us that the world does not have what it takes to overcome those barriers. And the early, the ancient time of the New Testament, the, the Roman Empire didn't have what it took to overcome those social barriers either. It didn't. And in fact, the church was looked upon as an anomaly and as a, you know, a curiosity and some, by some, a, a, you know, abomination. And they were saying, how on earth can you have people from different races sitting in the same meeting, like you find in the early church? People from different, completely different ethnic backgrounds. How can you have Jew and Greek sitting together? How can you have slave and free? People who are slaves, who are at the, right at the bottom of the socioeconomic order, and people who are free, who are free citizens. How, can, how on earth? I mean, it's, it's a scandal. For masters and their servants to sit in the same meeting. How can you have men and women sitting in the same, mean, same meeting? How on earth can this group, of, this group of people do that and allow that? Sunday mornings is commonly known as the most segregated time in, of the week. Because most churches don't look like our church. It's either white or it's black or, you know, it's some other ethnic group. Most churches don't look like us. Most churches, people don't want to mix. People don't want to overcome these, these barriers. But what Paul is telling us is that it's the one spirit who creates the, uh, the diversity of the body, 
also creates the unity of the body. In other words, both the diversity and the unity of the body have the same source, the Holy Spirit. And we have the one thing the world does not have that enables us to overcome all these social barriers. Because let's be honest, these social barriers are not easy to overcome. They are not easy to overcome. But I'm telling you now, if the gospel that we preach does not produce a community that is countercultural in that it brings together people who would not normally hang out together, then we're not preaching the whole gospel. Then we're preaching a reductionistic, truncated gospel, a watered-down gospel, which is not the true gospel. Because the true gospel allows me to call people my brother and my sister, people whom I would not necessarily naturally relate to or naturally easily become friends with. They become more than friends. They become family. We become one in the Spirit. In one Spirit, we are baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, ethnic, you know, across ethnic boundaries, whether slave or free, across socioeconomic boundaries. So, are you in community with people you won't naturally be friends with? Are you in community with people that you won't naturally be friends with? Or even in church, do you only make friends with people that you are comfortable with? That speak sort of the same language, the same dialect as you. This is challenging people. Listen, if we as the church in South Africa do not get this right, no one in South Africa is going to get this right. We are the only hope. We must be that countercultural community that puts the grace of God and the gospel of God on full display for the world so they can see it changes not only our hearts, but every part of our lives, our relationships, who we relate to. It changes everything. The true gospel, the whole gospel changes your whole life. Not just the way you pray or read your Bible. It changes everything. And if it doesn't change everything, you don't have the whole gospel yet. Or you're not effectively applying the gospel to your life. You know what Paul, uh, Paul said to Peter when, 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 when Peter was eating with the Gentiles, non-Jews? You know, so he was sitting at the table eating with people who are from a different ethnic background from him. And then when the Jews came from Jerusalem, Peter withdrew and he went to sit at the kosher table with the other Jews. Now Paul got angry and he said to him, he didn't say to him, Peter, you're being a racist. He says, Peter, you're not acting in line. You're not walking in line with the gospel. You are denying the gospel, Peter. You are not working out the power of the gospel in this area of your life. Because, why does Paul say that? Why can Paul say that? Because it's, on the one hand, it's, it's the one spirit that makes us one. Uh, if, you, if you read verse 30, it says, For in one spirit we were all baptized. Just notice the repetition. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jew or Greek, slave or free. And we were all made to drink of the one spirit. Notice the repetition of all and of one spirit. Paul's saying in parallelism, and in fact you can see that in the, in, the, in the English, but in the Greek, 
he uses two plural passive verbs that actually rhyme at the end of both of those phrases. So it's, it's very clear that he's saying the same thing twice. He's saying, in one spirit we baptize into one body, and we all be made to drink of the one spirit. In other words, the one spirit is both the element into which we are baptized, in which we are immersed, and also the element of which we drink and which fills us. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, when you... The only way to enter the body is to be absolutely overwhelmed and saturated by the Holy Spirit. You are baptized in the Spirit. In other words, you are in the Spirit. And you drink of the Spirit. In other words, the Spirit is in you. He's everywhere. (laughs) He saturates every part of your life. Like a sponge, you're just soaked with the Spirit, inside and out. You are in the Spirit and the Spirit's in you. And notice that's exactly what... Luke says of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And people find this, you know, how can I be in the Spirit and the Spirit be in me? But Luke says exactly the same thing. In in Acts 1 verse 5 he says, um, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Baptized in the Spirit, you are in the Spirit. But then when it happens on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2 verse 4 it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized in the Spirit. You'll be in the Spirit. But then when it happens, he says, you're all filled with the Spirit. Now the Spirit's in you. Exactly the same thing. Saturated by the Spirit. So that our spiritual sameness becomes so overwhelming and pervasive that our natural physical difference sort of melts into the background. It doesn't go away. You don't stop being an Afrikaner or a Zulu. Or, or a German, but it melts away into the background because the spirit, the common, the one spirit that we all have makes us more alike than people from our own ethnic group who do not have the one spirit. Who do not have the one spirit. In one spirit we're baptized into one body. But not only that, not only that, um, in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12, and I, and I want to end with this, he says, for just as a body is one, and as many members, and all the members of a body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. Now, he's mentioning a general principle. He says, just think of a, of a human body. A human body has many members. Arms, legs, fingers, ears, you name it. Many different members. Many diverse members. And yet, all of those members together form one body. And then he says... So it is with the church. No, that's not what he says. What does he say? He says, so it is with Christ. Oops, Paul, did you sort of write incorrectly there? Did you mean to say, so it is with the body of Christ? Or so it is with the church of Christ? And then you sort of forgot to put in body of or church of, and you just said, so it is with Christ. No, Paul did not make a mistake. What was Paul doing? Paul was trying to show us how deeply and intimately Jesus himself associates with his body. Paul had learned the lesson that Jesus tried to teach him on the road to Damascus when he got saved. Remember when Jesus knocked him off his horse? What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Hello? He didn't say, why are you persecuting my church? Just like I'm not going to say, why are you persecuting my little toe if you eat it with a hammer? (laughs) 
I'm not going to say, poor little toe, he's being persecuted again, (laughs) you know. Someone's attacking him. And he's so little, you know, why would they want to attack him, you know. I'm not going to be that dispassionate, you know. I'm, whoever's persecuting my little toe, the rest of my body's going to come to its defense and I'm going to lay hands, you know, and fivefold ministry, you know, minister the fivefold ministry to whoever's hitting my little toe with a hammer. Now, it's the same with Jesus. We are his body. And just like my head feels it when the rest of my body suffers, so Jesus feels it when we suffer. And, and, and Paul says exactly that in, um, in chapter 12, verse 26. He says, if one of the members suffers, all suffer together. If one of the members are honor, honored, all rejoice together. In other words, what Paul is saying is, our oneness is in Christ. Our unity is. The unity that the Spirit brings is a unity in Christ where we become so one with Christ that Paul can say so it is with Christ when he means so it is with the body because the body is the body of Christ. In other words, all the metaphors that the Bible uses to explain who we are tells us something about our relationship with Christ. When, when the Bible says we are sheep, it means he's our shepherd who leads us and takes care of us. If the Bible says that we are the bride, then it means he is our bridegroom who loves us passionately. When the Bible says that um, we are his body, what does it mean? He's our head. He feels us like a head feels a body. Do you know how intensely Jesus feels it when you suffer? Do you know how intensely Jesus feels it when we suffer? That is how intimately and closely Jesus relates to us. We severely underestimate the intimacy we have with Christ by the one Spirit. Jesus feels a lot closer to us than we feel to Him. Do you realize that this morning? Jesus feels a lot closer to you than you right now feel to Him. No matter how close you feel to Him. He feels a lot closer to you. Now, how do you, how do you, I think it was Charles Spurgeon who used this example, how do you tune a hundred pianos to one another? Because, I mean, pianos over time, they sort of, you know, the springs sort of slacken, and every year or so a piano needs to be tuned. So if you had a, have a hundred pianos that are completely out of tune with one another, how do you make sure that those hundred pianos are in tune with one another? Do you go, like, to the first one and, and tune, you know, the rest to it? But what if it's out of tune? Then all of them are going to be out of tune. What do you do? You take one tuning fork and you tune all hundred pianos to the one tuning fork. And what Paul is saying to us here is that Jesus is our spiritual tuning fork. If we are all individually in tune with Him, we will automatically be in tune with one another. We will be one in Christ. So it is with Christ. So it is with Christ. I just want the ushers, if they can quickly hand out the elements of the communion. I just want to read us one passage in closing. And I just want to encourage you 
to um, trust God, to experience that unity, that intimacy with Him that He that He experiences with us. Um, in in First Corinthians ten, verse from verse nineteen to about twenty one, it says, "What do what do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice." They offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. Why, why is Paul so serious about this cup thing and this table, the table of the Lord and the cup of the Lord? Because the table of the Lord and the cup of the Lord, the communion that we're going to celebrate now, is a covenant, thanks be is a covenant renewal ceremony. And the reason why the bread is broken is because Jesus' body was broken to make us one. And His blood was shed. His red blood. Guess what? I don't care what your skin color is. What shade of brown you are. You might be light brown like me. Or uh, you might be a more dark brown like Emmanuel here, or me. So, I don't care what shade of brown you are. Cut yourself and your blood will be red. When Jesus bled, He bled the red blood. And his red blood bought people with red blood from every tribe and people and nation and tongue. And his body was broken so that in him we, across all ethnic boundaries, all socioeconomic classes can be made one. So that in Revelations 5 verse 9 it says that he, actually let me read it to you. It's just so beautiful and so powerful. You know, the, the vision of where God is taking us to as His church. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, and, and they sang a new song saying, For you were slain, your body was broken, and your blood, and, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. You see the beautiful vision that Jesus is holding up to us, what he want, what he's busy making us, and through us holding up to the world, saying this is what the world can look like if you submit to me, to my lordship, to my kingdom, you make me king. Allow me to make you a kingdom of priests. Jesus paid for our unity with his life, with his blood. It was dearly bought by him. And because of that, because he died and shed his blood, he can give his spirit to us. And the spirit creates both the unity and the diversity of the body. So let's stand. Father, we want to thank you, Lord, for this bread, this broken bread, which represents the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, that you were broken so that we can be made whole. And Lord, we pray that we as a community will put both the beautiful unity and diversity of the gospel on display for this world. Lord, we pray that we'll be different from the world, that we won't just connect with people for our benefit, and that we won't just connect with people who are like us in every way, but that we'll intentionally connect with people who are different from us. Lord, that you will allow the 
just the saturation and the pervasive nature of your Spirit's presence in us to overwhelm all external differences and to make us one in a way that is truly supernatural. Let us truly be your body. Let's eat together. Thank you, Jesus, that your blood was shed for us. Lord, that your blood was shed for all the hurt that we've caused one another, Lord, as different ethnic groups and different um, social classes. But thank you that we can forgive one another, Lord, without wanting revenge because we know that the price for our sins have already been paid. That vengeance has already been taken. Only it hasn't been taken on us. It has been taken on you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray, Lord, where there's in South Africa still such a need for vengeance um, and so much hurt, Lord, among so many people, Lord, because of um, the atrocities of the past and the cruelty of the past, Lord. We want to pray, Lord, Jesus, that through your blood, You'll bring healing, Lord. Lord, and that we as South Africans will, Lord, particularly in the church, Lord, be able to forgive one another and really live in deep love as brothers and sisters with one another because we know that you have already been punished for what we did wrong. Vengeance has already been taken on you. And we want to honor that and honor your blood this morning and we receive it in Jesus name let's drink together Lord we just want to again Lord say that we don't want to partake in the cup or the table of demons by partaking of your cup by partaking of your table we want to say Lord we commit ourselves we recommit ourselves to you I just feel that some of you as you're standing there just need to close your eyes in fact all of us just close your eyes and say, Lord, even as I've drunk this cup and, 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 and eaten, eaten this bread which represents your body, I just covenantally recommit myself to you and to distance myself from every other, you know, covenant that this world wants to bring me into. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jarberg.